And so as a practitioner, that that's the ultimate dream, right? To get to know your patient, to be able to understand what's going on with them and treat them holistically. There's nothing like walking away from making an impact in somebody's life in which you've educated them on their healthcare journey and you know that they've got the tenacity to follow through because you've encouraged and coached them. You cannot do that in fee-for-service in 15 minutes. What's wrong with American healthcare and how can patients be proactive partners in their care and avoid being victims of a complex, labyrinthine and confusing system? Let's talk all about it right here on episode 384 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you, your personal and professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews like this one with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, tech, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. I appreciate my patrons and also those of you who leave ratings and reviews. That is so awesome of you to do so. Please head over to nursekeith.com to the podcast drop-down menu to find the show notes for this episode, number 384. And I am here with friend of the pod and my new friend, Dr. David Wilcox, coming to us from North Carolina. And David, we are here to talk about your book and your ideas and insights as a doctor of nursing practice about the American healthcare system and how we can avoid being victims of the system because all of us are patients at one point or another, whether we're doctors, neurosurgeons, nurses, medical assistants, we all end up as patients in some way. So what is <laughs> what does a patient need to safely access the American healthcare system? What should they know and bear in mind? So a patient really needs to proactively educate themselves around the American healthcare system. So we as clinicians, Keith, we have the ability to be able to know what questions to ask. So if, if I'm a doctor or a nurse or a nurse tech and enter the hospital, we have a basic idea of what to expect. It's the general public who walk into our world, let's say, uh, that don't know what to expect. Uh, and you've seen it when you've admitted patients on the floor, you ask them to take their clothes off, give them a gown in which their whole backside is exposed. They lose dignity. They get meals at a certain time of the day. They're afraid. They don't know what to expect. Um, how about the roommate who has somebody code next to them in the other bed? I mean, understanding the basics of the American healthcare system, whether you're entering the hospital or whether you're dealing with the pharmaceutical companies or whether you're looking at an insurance claim denial is very important for the average American to know because healthcare is complex and it's complex for a reason. It's complex because the entities who are vying for your healthcare dollars really don't want you to know what's going on in the American healthcare system. And since you said that, why do they not want you to know? What is it they're trying to obfuscate? So if you look at the price transparency laws that came out 
um, on January 1st, 2022 for hospitals, for instance, you would think that the hospitals would want us to know what our procedures were going to cost because that way we could budget accordingly, right, and pay them and they wouldn't have to go to bad debt. But instead, they're fighting this tooth and nail with only 16% of them being compliant at this point in time. And most of those are because they were fined, um, which hasn't happened across the board, but there's been enough of it going on. So one of the reasons that the hospitals don't want you to know what your procedures are going to cost is because if you have a high deductible plan, you can shop around. You may find, like in my area of North Carolina, a total knee, um, if you're a self-pay, is going to cost you $12,000 at the hospital. If you go to an ambulatory surgical center, it's going to cost you $8,000. You're probably going to go home the same day. Oh, oh, by the way, the ambulatory surgical center has better quality outcomes than the hospital does. So it's a cat and mouse game of trying not to give you the information so that hopefully you will just subscribe to whatever you're being told and, and be a good little healthcare sheep and follow along. Hmm. A good little healthcare sheet. So what about if you're a healthcare provider like me or you, we also get bills. I recently got a bill for a procedure that was much higher than what they said was going to be the cash rate because my insurance wasn't going to cover it because I have a high deductible thanks to the uh, Affordable Care Act with Mm -hmm. um, quotation marks, sarcastic quotation marks around the word affordable. Let's just say that. So (laughs) what are our tools at our disposal when we feel like something is costing us a whole lot more than we think it should? Or if we're a healthcare provider, say you're a primary care provider and your patient comes to you and said, oh my God, the hospital charged me so much. How do you educate your patient and say, hey, this is what you need to do? So that's a great point. And actually, I put together a free healthcare resource guide at drdavidhelps.com that you can download. You just sign up for my periodic updates and you get a copy of this healthcare guide. And there's a great price transparency tool in there called Turquoise. You can enter in, actually, you can filter by star ratings, meaning you can filter by the quality of the hospital or the quality of the physician. And you can actually get a pretty close to price of with your insurance of what it's going to cost for a procedure in your area. The same information that the hospitals are not posting to their website, even though that was mandated on January 1st of this year. DrDavidHelps.com. Yes. Okay. I'm actually going to sign up and download that uh, because I have this issue I need to address with a local hospital here in New Mexico. So thanks. And I may call you for some advice. Absolutely. If, if you're a provider, I mean, hopefully your best intentions are, you know, we are wearing them on your sleeve and you're trying to do the best possible job. And we know that there are some providers out there that hmm, maybe they're a little lazy, maybe they're burned out, and maybe the care they're providing isn't quite as good as it could be, or maybe once was when they were kind of more like in contact with their their motivations and their mojo, like why they're doing what they're doing. So how does a patient know that their provider's providing good care? What, what are the signs and symptoms of a good <laughs> provider or a not so great provider? So that's a, a great question. 
Uh, another part of that healthcare resource guide has a one-click link to health grades where you can check out any provider within your area and see what patients are saying about the provider, see how the patients are rating them. Um, and also, you know, I and um, our providers never come to work to have a bad day or to do a bad job. I don't believe that. But under the fee-for-service system, they're incentivized to upcode and see as many patients as they can see. In fact, I was talking to a physician who recently got out of practice because he was being told to upcode things. And he, and he told the physician in charge of the practice that he said, I'm a straight shooter. I can't do that. And so he was no longer a good match. But they're under this tremendous pressure under a fee-for-service system, because if you don't show up and show up sick, they don't make any money under fee-for-service. So it's not, yeah, it's not set up for the, the consumer to actually save money. It's set up so that the service itself can make a profit. I see. Okay. Well, you're talking about like banging out the patients, like one after the other, right? That's correct. So a lot of nurse practitioners come to me, especially relatively new FNPs, and you're a DNP. Yes. They come to me and they say, you know, I was a nurse. I decided to become a nurse practitioner because I wanted to really have this direct impact and be a prescriber myself and, you know, all the things. And what they tell me is that they may not use this language, but they say that they're like a square peg trying to fit into a round hole because they go to a family practice, a community health center, a private practice, and they're expected to see patients in 15 minute visits, 30 for a very complex patient, if you're lucky. And they, what I hear from NPs often is that they feel like they're being turned into mini doctors and that they're being programmed away from the more holistic type of care that they were trained to provide as nurses, that kind of well-rounded, you know, look at all the different angles, all the different aspects of a multidimensional human. So what do you think about the 15-minute visit and where MDs and NPs fit into that paradigm, especially in primary care and even specialty care? So that you bring up an excellent point. They're not allowed to spend enough time with the patient to understand the patient's full picture. So let's talk about the days when you had um, just general practitioners who actually went to the house. They could spend time, they could see the family situation, they could see what was in the cupboards, they could, they could see the whole complete picture. In 15 minutes time, you cannot do that with a patient. Um, you're lucky if you can diagnose and treat whatever they're presenting with in that time period. So that it's not a great model fee for service. But what I would say to these nurse practitioners is explore value-based care jobs. Because in value-based care, the organization or the accountable care organization, which is just a fancy name for a bunch of doctors who are in a network together, get paid a capitated amount every year for Keith's care or David's care. And if they can keep you healthy and out of the hospital, they get to keep the profit on that. If they can't keep you healthy and out of the hospital, then they're at risk to lose money. 
So they're very motivated to text you when it's time for your yearly flu shot, or maybe your colonoscopies do. They want to keep you healthy. They've got skin in the game and they spend more time with you. And so as a practitioner, that that's the ultimate dream, right? To get to know your patient, to be able to understand what's going on with them and treat them holistically. There's nothing like walking away from making an impact in somebody's life in which you've educated them on their healthcare journey and you know that they've got the tenacity to follow through because you've encouraged and coached them. You cannot do that in fee-for-service in 15 minutes. You have to rely on the nurse to come in behind you and try to give that patient as much education as they're willing to receive. Right. And you mentioned value-based care. If you're a nurse practitioner and you might be new, you might be seasoned, and you hear this term, like you're listening to this interview right now and you're like, huh, okay. How do you know that a practice is a value-based care practice and that that's how things are going to be run. Do you just ask? Do you see it on their website? How do you find this information out when you're looking for a job? It's very easy to find. You can Google accountable care organizations near me and you can find you can find accountable care organizations, even in rural areas. Um, so if you're thinking about moving to, let's say, Denver, Colorado, you could Google and look for accountable care organizations and look for openings there. Again, they're not as pressured to see that many patients, they're pressured to keep their patients healthy and whole. And that's why I got into this game. And I'm sure that's why a lot of people who are listening to that this podcast got into the game. We didn't get into this to get rich, right? We got into this because we were called to help people and we mm -hmm. were called to take care of people. And under fee for service, that's next to impossible and very frustrating for providers, for nurses and the patients alike. That's right. And I always say that, you know, we don't go into nursing for the awesome outfits, the the sexy shoes and the, the really high salaries. I mean, that's not why we go into nursing generally, right? Um, I mean, the white shoes are awesome, but you know, they don't go with everything. And then after Labor Day, you're screwed, right? Can't wait <laughs> right after Labor Day. So accountable care organizations, they practice value-based care, right? Is that yes. a, a fair statement? Yes. Okay. So he here's a, a story, if you don't mind me sharing, Pete. So no. it's, it's funny, the public's general con conception of value-based care. So my brother-in-law had to get his hip done and he got it done under a bundled payment model, which is basically value-based care. They paid a certain amount for my brother-in-law to get his hip done. It's a, it should be smooth and easy, went home the same day. And so he gets home and they prescribed him very strong pain medication. Now, my brother-in-law, as far as I know, has never drank or used illicit drugs in his life. And so he started popping Percocets for pain. All of a sudden, he thought he was having a heart attack. He felt like his heart was beating out of his chest. So they rushed him to the emergency room. They did a very expensive cardiac workup on him, troponins and EKGs, and to find out what was going on with him, only to find that his pain medication was too strong. So they discharged him and sent him home. Now, once the bundled payment folks got a hold of this. They sent a nurse right out to the house the next day. So I'm on the phone with my sister and I, and she says, oh, it's great, David. There's there's nurses coming out here. They're, they've come out twice today. They're really paying a lot of attention and it's all free. And I said, well, 
Sis, it's really not free. They're protecting their own interests because he was under a value-based care model and you just cost them a lot of money and they do not want him going back to the emergency room. So I'm sure you're getting lots of teaching on who to call prior to going to the emergency room. Oh yes, it's been great. But see her general perception and she's a registered dietitian was that this was all free because of what occurred with him when actually they were looking after their capitated amount, right? Which is what they should be doing. And, and he cost them some money. I see. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about the ways in which healthcare is changing. I mean, telehealth has become a thing, right? Where, you know, you don't necessarily go to the office, you get seen by video and that can work in certain circumstances. And I even, you know, over the winter, I had shingles for the first time and I really didn't want to go to the ER or urgent care and wait three hours, four hours to get seen for shingles. So at my fiance's urgent urging, I went online, found an app for a, a, one of those online apps for urgent care. I downloaded it. I actually um, went on, put in all my symptoms of a doctor came on video within about 15 minutes. I showed him with video on my phone what was going on. He diagnosed it, called in a prescription. And with a follow-up call, five days later was $26, right? And I didn't even have to subscribe to this app. And my copay to go to urgent care and wait four hours would have been $35. So there's telehealth, there's apps, there's all these things that are changing in terms of technology. What do you like about that? And what do you not like about that? So what I like about that is, unfortunately, it took a pandemic for us to understand that uh, telehealth visit can be reimbursed at the same level as an office visit, right? Because it's no different and, and much to your experience, it was much more efficient and less costly than it would have been if you went to urgent care. The other thing that we're going to see a lot more of, and we're already seeing, is given the staffing shortages that we're seeing of clinicians now, clinician, or patients who aren't as acute do not need to be in a hospital anymore. They can be at home with monitored equipment with a nurse navigator looking at their, at their vitals, their heart rate, um, their weights, and things like that. So, even Best Buy has gotten into this. I mean, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they'll go out and set up a whole hospital room at your house for you. Um, Value-based care model. So again, when we talk about what works with technology is under fee-for-service, if you had congestive heart failure, you would, ah, I don't feel so good. You know, I'm a little bit winded and stuff, but um, I'm okay. And then all of a sudden you go into full-blown CHF crisis, you go to the emergency room, they diurese you, they keep you as an inpatient for a couple of days, costs you and the insurance company a lot of money, the hospital makes money, and then you go back home with patient teaching and hopefully it doesn't happen again. In value-based care, they would have wireless scales, they would have a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff, they would have a pulse oximeter that fed up to the cloud, they would be monitoring you so that, and they would have access to your Fitbit or your Apple Watch or whatever you use. So all of a sudden they say, hmm, Keith hasn't been walking as much as usual and his oxygen levels have fallen quite a bit. Uh, 
and he looks like he's gained four pounds over the last three days. And so now they're going to call you and ask you to do a telehealth appointment or text you or whatever your communication method is. And they're going to say, hey, you know, we've noticed this. We think you're um, we think we need to diarrhea some fluid off from you. And you're going to get treated before, before you ever go into that full blown CHF episode. So it works so much better for the patients. And it yeah, and it works out better for the uh, the payers at the same time, and that's why they like that kind of thing. Now, you, you asked me what I didn't like. Yeah. Okay. What I don't like about it is unless you have somebody there with you at the house, if a lead comes off, and you know this from working in the hospital, you think somebody's in a fib, or you think worse yet they're in VTAC, and you go in and there's a lead off. So you know, or maybe they're. Um, brushing their teeth. So, I mean, those kind of things are hard unless you're actually physically monitoring the patient on a camera. Um, yeah, right. But that's one of the. That's true. Here's another concern, um, and this is just before we take a break. I want to address this. Okay, we're uploading stuff to the cloud. We have all this stuff going on. You know, your book talks about data breaches, mm -hmm. which are not science fiction. Uh, we know that this happens all the time, even with the most secure databases out there, like the federal government, for instance. So what are your concerns about privacy in this like hyper digital age now and where lots and lots of our, you know, very private information is going up into the cloud? So the data breaches are meant to get things like your social security number, um, your medical records, your insurance company information, not necessarily your vital signs and things that these nurse navigators would be uh, okay. would be looking at, because that wouldn't really do uh, the data thieves any good. Uh, they'd have to match it up. And, and what are they going to do with that? Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, getting your social security number, your credit card and payment information is what they really want. So it's really the hospitals that they're attacking and they're attacking hospitals because hospitals are paying ransom. Okay. One last thing about that. Sure. With, with genetic information, you know, when, when we do some sort of genetic test that, you know, prognosticates that we're at high risk of Alzheimer's or whatever, I mean, that's good information to have for most of us, unless we don't want to know. What what are your fears around that in terms of some Orwellian type of uh, situation where you can't get insured or your insurer wants to charge you a whole lot more because of the risks that they see in your genetic profile? Yes, I actually cover that in my book mm -hmm. um, and, and talk about that because insurance companies, there's certain rules. They can't peruse that information as an insurance company, but if they have a life insurance company, underneath them, they can. So they can actually get, if they can get access to that, then it will play out in what kind of policy you get. Um, and also, you know, I mean, they found a, a, a serial killer in San Francisco 47 years later by matching his relative's DNA from 23andMe um, at, you know, an Ancestry.com and we're able to hone in on the fact that this was the guy who actually did it with the DNA evidence that they got. So they can reconstruct your D, your DNA. And once you spit into that tube, they de-identify it, but they put it out there for researchers and sometimes they sell it. So once mm -hmm. your, once your DNA is out there, it's out there. It's, there's no getting it back. Good point. Well, David, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your career and a little bit more about your book. And I have some 
career-oriented questions for you around nurse practitioners and kind of where we're heading at this point in the 21st century. So when we come back for the second half of episode 384, we'll return with Dr. David Wilcox, doctor of nursing practice, to talk about his book and a whole lot more. So stay with us for the second half of the episode. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend, Dr. David Wilcox. And David, prior to the break, we were talking about telehealth and we we're talking about how to avoid being a victim of the American healthcare system. And first, I just want to point out that you're a doctorate prepared nurse and you also have a master's in health administration and you're board certified in nursing informatics. So you have this kind of like tech thing, plus you have the health administration plus the DNP. So tell us a little bit about the DNP and um, what what direction that took you in once you decided to take the plunge and get a terminal degree. <laughs> Certainly. And I hope it's terminal because my wife has told me I'm not even allowed to take Facebook ex- quizzes anymore. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so um, yeah, the DNP, I had gotten my master's healthcare in healthcare administration. Um, and then I just felt like I should go get my DMP. So uh, I grabbed one of my coworkers and said, hey, guess what we're going to do? We're going to get our DMPs. And she was like, oh, no, kids are teenagers. Um, I said to her, Jenny, I, we, we just need to do it. Let's do it. So we went to get our DMP degree. And about three quarters of the way through it, I thought, what am I going to do with this? Because I'm learning a lot around the system and and things outside of my purview. And I thought, you know, I don't want my boss's job. I don't want my boss's boss's job, but I do want to give some information back to to people who need it. And that's when I decided I was going to sit down, pen to paper and write this book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System and put this knowledge into layman's terms so that I ordinary person can pick this up and say, oh, if I'm in the hospital and they're trying to give me medications and I don't recognize them, I need to start asking questions. I need to ask, what is this medicine for? Um, you know, so that they could be better partners in their healthcare. And that was really, I didn't know it at the time when I entered the DNP, but that was really my end game when I got out. I think I finally put it together, um, but it kind of formulated, you know, when you're in school, it's all school and it's all work. Um, but if Finally sat down and got it together, I guess, Keith. <laughs> That's great. And do, do you practice clinically or did you prior? Um, I did up until, well, I guess it, it's been a while because I was in um, hospital management prior to me going into healthcare IT. Um, so I was, a, I was a ICU nurse, an ED nurse, a, a float nurse. And with a float nurse, I was asked, I was de-escalating situations in the ED, and so they asked me if I would be a house supervisor at night, and that began my management journey. And from there, they asked me about a year later, um, because I would never hold patients for monitored beds, and they would ask me, why don't you hold patients like the rest of the supervisors? And I said, well, I just go up and talk to the charge nurses. Mm -hmm. And I say, somebody's grandma's in the ED, come take a look. And they'll come down and they'll see the chaotic ED and they'll say, well, yeah, we got a bed. We had it closed off for staffing, but we'll go ahead and take that patient up. So it was just, you know, I never told them to do it. I just took them down there. And so with that, they gave me patient placement and the house, 
um, house administrators at night and during the day and, you know, the float pool and I got all kinds of stuff and then made the jump to healthcare IT probably about 14 years ago. See, so you've been around, you've seen yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yes. And the book shows that it demonstrates your vast knowledge and you, there's lots of facts, a lot of information. Like you point out things that like Americans spend 18% of the gross national product on healthcare and only 60 cents per dollar on social supports. Whereas other industrialized nations, like maybe in Europe, for instance, they spend 8.6% of their GDP, 10% less on healthcare, and they spend $2 per every healthcare dollar on social support. So there's there's some things here that are that are kind of backwards. And I'm curious, you know, I mentioned nurse practitioners earlier and how a lot of NPs come to me. And I hear talk on the interwebs about NPs feeling kind of disenchanted with this whole model that you and I have been talking about. The Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates that NPs will see 45% job growth between 2020 and 2030. And we're only in 2022. So we've got eight years to go. And for doctors, medical doctors, the job growth is in the single digits. Often, some say it's below 5%. So what does this mean for the healthcare system with more nurse practitioners coming online, fewer and fewer MDs? And I bet the majority of those I bet are likely in primary care. <laughs> what does this mean for the future of healthcare? Is this a good thing because we'll have more NPs or is it going to be more NPs being pounded into that round hole when they're square pegs? So it's... It's interesting you ask that question because in our state of North Carolina, they just passed legislation to allow NPs to practice independently, meaning oh, they, they don't did. have to be. Excellent. Yes. And in Virginia, um, which is where I, uh, where I obtained my um, doctorate of nursing practice, they did the same thing. So what they're trying to do is solve for the rural, rural America's healthcare crisis using NPs. You're not going to get a a doc to move out into East Kentucky where, you know, unfortunately we just saw a lot of flooding, Uh, but you might get a nurse practitioner who was from that area out into, to take care of patients in that area. Yeah. So, yeah. So nurse practitioners are are the answer for rural care and the demands that we're having um, on, on taking care of people with limited caregivers. Now, at the same time, you don't want a nurse practitioner, you know, doing neurosurgery on you, right? So, um, but you can, they certainly can take care of you after you've had neurosurgery and know what to look for uh, and pres- and prescribe. Um, it's interesting because I was just recently over in London and nursing practice over there is a little bit different. So nurses can practice like physicians, especially in the emergency department, um, if they've taken the appropriate level of training that a physician has taken. And that if you see a doctor in a London ED, you know you're in real trouble because you're going to get treated by a nurse practitioner. So the different models that you see around the world um, are vastly different than what we have in America. Uh, we kind of, we're kind of like you said, you know, uh, square peg going into a round hole. Whereas mm-hmm. over there, they they embrace that that whole setup of cl- clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to ask you one more question about 
higher education and terminal degrees before we go back to some other issues I want to cover with you. Nurse practitioners are not required to have a doctorate, whereas physical therapists now have to get a doctorate, right? And some got grandfathered in when that switch happened. And I'm sure some of that grandfathering or grandmothering will happen when this happens for NPs. What's your opinion about this move towards terminal degrees? And do you think that it might become for nurses like it is for physical therapists? And if it did, would that be a good thing? So actually, in the state of Virginia, I was in school with some CRNAs who are now required to have their doctorate. Um, Does it make a difference in how they practice? I don't think so, because I think you learn your skill set and your uh, your ability to practice with your, you know, um, PA or nurse practitioner or, or wherever you end up being or your CRNA. I think a lot of the business model and, and some more theory goes into the doctorate piece of it. Um, certainly getting my doctorate didn't help me put in an IV better. I mean, but it did teach me that there are different models and different things to consider when you're you're trying to set up a value-based care model or something like that. So, yeah, I don't know if I would rather have my nurse practitioner who practices on patients focused on that than focus on trying to go to school and practice on patients, right? Yeah, that's true. I'm just watching this. Just I'm curious. I'm I'm just keeping an eye on it just because I know that... You know, there's some people in the world here talk about how it's kind of professional parody, P-A-R-I-T-Y, not parody like Monty Python. So it's professional parody, meaning, you know, if a nurse practitioner is, you know, doctor, like your doctor, David Wilcox, you know, Dr. Jones or Dr. Carlson, that kind of helps elevate us in terms of our credibility. So some people feel it's sort of a professional credibility issue. I mean, that's a long conversation we could have, but I'm, I'm just keeping an eye on it because I feel like it's something we need to watch. And it's just, it's interesting to me and people ask me all the time. So I wanted to run it by you. Yeah. Yeah. I think if it helps you, if it, if you want to be elevated to that degree, that's fine. But I, I've worked and been seen by nurse practitioners. Uh, I don't, I don't care if they're called doctor or not. They're, mm-hmm. they're very good. They take the time to understand what's going on with me and, you know, and make me feel like I'm a partner in my care. And I think that that's what it's all about. It doesn't matter if you're an LPN or an RN or a nurse practitioner or a doctor or a doctor of nursing practice. If you can make people feel like they're part of their health care and that you're, you're really looking out for them, I think that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. And gosh, I just realized we have to start winding down soon. I have so many more questions. So let's do a little lightning round here. So um, David, explain to us in 10 words or less. No, I'm kidding. Um, why are prescription <laughs> drugs prices so high? Well, everybody thinks it's the new drug that comes out, you know, the pricey drug that comes out. Yeah. But actually, it, it is the drug itself being bumped up over the cost of inflation every year, the everyday drugs that you use. And so you saw in this recent legislation that they're trying to get that went through the Senate, and they're trying to get through the House, that they're going after drugs that are higher than inflation. Um, it's a start. It's not a great start, but that's the reason why prescription drugs are so costly. And plus, 
you know, there are a lot of lobbyists. There were tons of lobbyists on the Hill during this bill trying to make sure that they didn't touch the prescription drug world, right? They didn't, they didn't let Medicare negotiate drug prices. And to some degree, I mean, they, they won because you, in 2026, Medicare can negotiate the price of 10 drugs. That's it. 10 I mean, drugs. 10 drugs, yes. And in 2027, it'll be 15. And in 2028, it will be 20. That's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Hmm. The one nice thing they did do, if it passes, is that they did uh, take vials of insulin down to $35 maximum for Medicare recipients, not people who have insurance that got cut out of the bill. Um, so is that immediate or is that 2029? That, that's that, yeah, right. Actually, I think that's 2023. 2023. So this yeah. new legislation. It, was it signed into law or is it still Not in yet. process? It's, it's, yeah, it has to be voted through the House, the which, House. But, but the House is controlled by Democrats and they're really the ones that wrote this in conjunction with their Republican counterparts. So I imagine it will get passed, um, but you, you, you never know, right? It's the government. You never know. Yeah. So. so this yeah. legislation is going to cover prescription drug costs and yep. what are the other main pillars? It's mostly deals with Medicare. Um, so they're going to cap Part D, which is your prescription benefits and Medicare mm -hmm. to only $2,000 a year. And they're mm -hmm. going to allow you to pay that over a monthly premium if you're, you know, if you're a big user of medication, so you don't have to pay it all at once. Um, so they've, they've done some good in that area, but more of it's stretching it out. And, you know, um, the very fact that Medicare can negotiate drug prices it, it is a good sign. Mm -hmm. Medicaid's been doing it for years and kept their costs down, mm -hmm. but Medicare it wasn't allowed to. Okay. Um, yeah, so th there's a there's a lot of things we could probably do a whole show on it, Keith. I'm sure we could. Truth. Maybe we should when the legislation comes out, yes. um, when it's signed into law. Um, right. Why? And this has happened to me because <laughs> I have the Affordable Care Act. Um, why does my insurance company deny claims? And why? Why is there this such complex system of like co-pays and co-insurance and what what the hell are all these things anyway? Yeah. So that what so the insurance company itself is a business, right? They sit in the middle of your provider acting as the payers and you the patient. So you're paying in and they're and they're right there to receive the money that you're paying them. However, if you want to pay out, they're going to make you jump through the hoops. Um, I've seen it myself. Uh, we, I used to be, we used to have a self-insured company and then recently just went to insurance and they were denying some medications and things, but, um, that's the game. They don't want to pay They're These pharmacy benefit managers sit in the middle and they call the shots. Um, and they're mostly owned by the pharmacies that, but they call the shots and say, you know, that's too expensive a drug. You can't try that chemo doctor. You have to try this chemo. Now, these are guys with little to no medical training, and the doctor knows the patient and what he thinks is going to work. And somebody who has stage four cancer doesn't have time to dance around trying a cheaper drug, but they do it all the time to bring their costs down so that they can pass it on to their shareholders. So when you get denied a claim, what a lot of people don't know is if you appeal it and if you take it to court, 98% of the time you're going to win. So I'll say that again, 98% of the time you're going to win. The insurance company is hoping that you just get sick of it. And that you just pay the money and walk away because that's what that's what they want to happen. But what is it going to cost you to take them to court? 
<laughs> it, it, it depends. Some people, some lawyers will do it pro bono because they've gone through experiences with insurance companies. Um, it, it all depends on your income level and it depends on how much you want to fight it. Usually you can appeal the claim and, um, and it, they'll satisfy it. I see. I have a, a hospital oriented question for you. Sure. What is your opinion and about the corporate consolidation of hospitals, you know, big, big systems gobbling up lots of smaller hospitals. How is that hurting us and how is it helping us? So when a bigger system gobbles up a smaller hospital, it's usually because a smaller hospital is having problems staying afloat. Uh, in some cases, in fact, one of the hospitals that I was working with, they actually did it as a proactive strategy. So they would never go through having problems, you know, keeping the doors open. Um, but the bigger hospitals have supply chain management where they're buying now for like, you know, a hundred hospitals so they can drop the costs much like what you see when people are negotiating drug prices. If Medicare was allowed to do it, they could drop the costs of the medications. Um, oh, and by the way, not negotiating drug prices costs Americans $11 billion extra a year, which the pharmaceutical companies love. But yes. So if you're a little hospital and you get swallowed up by a bigger hospital, you don't have to worry about, you know, your your bottom line and all of that. You're part of a bigger system. And so you're going to be able to care for your community because they have more resources. That's the plus side of it. The bottom side of it is you've got to start to do things so a corporate tells you to do them. Um, so, I mean, that's the trade-off. Yeah. So there are pluses and minuses to it. And I I, yeah. I do appreciate the notion around smaller community hospitals, which would have shuttered their windows and doors otherwise. So there's, there is that, and there are some good healthcare systems out there doing good work in the world, you know? Yes, so, there are. Yeah, there are. And so, you know, we have to take the good with the bad because this is what we've got on our plate. And, you know, as advocates and as engaged citizens, we can talk to our legislators, we can write letters, we can read the bills, you know, there's lots of things we can do. So we just have to, and we can educate our patients, right? How to work with the system like your book does. And speaking of your book, people can find it on Amazon, of course. And that is how to avoid being a victim of the American healthcare system, a patient's handbook for survival. That's on Amazon. And it was published in 2021. And people can also go to drdavidwilcox.com and that's drdavidwilcox.com and then Dr. David Helps. And Dr. David Helps is where we can find all of those really handy uh, things you mentioned that we can use to look up our zip code and all those different things we can put in. One click service to lowering your drug prices, all the things that we've been talking about on this show, price transparency, how to see the star ratings on a hospital and how to check out your, your local doctors. Awesome. And David, do you have another book in the works? Do you think there's another one or is your wife like, ah, uh, no, we're going traveling? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a little bit of that. Yeah. We've been doing quite a bit of traveling, but, um, you know, I haven't decided. I'm kicking around some ideas. Uh, and once I land on something, I'll run it by the boss, my wife, and uh, <laughs> we'll figure out from yeah. there what we're going to do. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be as bad as finishing a dissertation, but you never know. I mean, writing yeah. a book can be a bear as well. And before we go, I have four quick questions I've been asking all my guests these last months. Are you game for some questions that 
just elicit some interesting thought-provoking answers? Sure. All right. So first question is, how do you define success, either personally and or professionally? So success is my ability to help one person a day. If I can help one person a day, then that day has been successful for me. Nice. Okay. You you definitely had that one down. And folks, <laughs> I did not prompt him with these questions prior. This is like on the spot, Dr. David in the hot seat. Okay. Second one. Could you name or even just describe one person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous or not famous, just someone who's had a, a you know big impact on you. That would be my daughter, April oh. Wilcox. She okay. is... Yeah, she is multiply handicapped, and she's the reason why I became a nurse many years ago. After taking her around and seeing the way that that the clinicians worked with me, who was just I was just a teenager to take care of her, and she was a very sick little girl. Um, that really inspired me. And so when I got laid off from manufacturing, I went right into the LPN school and started my journey. Wow! And so you were a teenager when you had her. Yes. And how old is she now? She is 44. 44. I was a bad I was a bad kid, Keith. Well, it sounds like you're a great <laughs> dad. So there you go. There you go. All right. So the third question is, is there a book or a movie? Could be either one. And it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, just one that comes into mind that's had a major influence on the way you think or the way you live your life. Give Your Speech, Change the World is the book. Um, it, it's written by a Harvard professor and basically gives you the premise of if you're going to get in front of a bunch of people, much like what you and I are doing today, you better have something that you can give them in return that could be life altering. Wow. Give your speech, change the world. That's by Nick Morgan. Yes. Wow. Interesting. I'm going to have to pick that one up. It's Give Your Speech, Change the World, How to Move Your Audience to Action from 2005. Right. All right. Yes. I'm going to have to check that out because I do a fair amount of public speaking myself. So in changing the world is what it's all about, right? Yes. Yeah. And prior to, prior to this, I was afraid to public speak. And so that book, reading that book and just taking advantage of every opportunity in my earlier career gave me the presence that I have now where I just get up and speak. Nice. That's wonderful. And you do it well. All right. One more question. And this actually interestingly relates to the fact that you had a um, child as a teenager. So this is the question I've been asking my guests. What's one piece of advice you'd give your 18-year-old self? So 18-year-old David right now, whether you think he would listen or not. <laughs> yeah. So 18-year-old David was pretty stubborn, but I would have to say to 18-year-old David that Take it one day at a time and make the most out of every opportunity that comes your way. Don't ever second guess yourself. Just put yourself out there. And if you fail, learn from it. And if you don't, enjoy the success. Nice. Wow, David, you were a quick study. Those were, those were great. <laughs> Someday I'm going to have to take all of these responses from guests and kind of knit them all together into a, like some kind of audio book or something. I don't know. That'd be great. They're really interesting. They, these elicit really interesting questions. And I actually got this format from Alan Alda. Remember Alan Alda from MASH? Yeah. yeah. He, um, he's really into communication and he has a great podcast and it's called Clear and Vivid. 
And it's a lot about science and the communication of science. And he has seven questions he asks his guests at the end of each show. And they're pretty fascinating questions. And so I kind of stole this from Alan and, and um, I called him up. He said it was fine. So you know, no problem. <laughs> well, David Wilcox, Dr. David Wilcox, thank you so much. This is wonderful. And when that legislation gets signed into law, I think you and I should hop on a call and talk about how we might unpack that legislation for the audience. Definitely. Um, I'll be doing quite a bit of speaking around that legislation when it comes out. And it should pass sometime in August, it looks like. Let's do that um, this fall or winter and and kind of dig into it. Sounds great, Keith. I've really enjoyed my time with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes for episode 384 will be at nursekeith.com. Remember to head over to Dr. David Helps and also drdavidwilcox.com, where you can download the book and download those awesome, helpful um, resources that David mentioned throughout this episode. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, please consider reaching out to me at nursekeith.com. Mention the show and you get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you'd like to become a patron, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nursekeith. $2 a month would be awesome. And you can also pledge more and get some great premiums and gifts for me as my thank you, my gratitude for your support. Speaking of support, we're a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And we're going to have to convince Dr. David to start his own podcast and get onto the network and have more people hear what he has to say. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. I'm grateful to Rob and Mark for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction because who knows what would happen if they weren't there. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this, my very favorite quote. This is by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the inimitable Dr. David Wilcox saying arrivederci from Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you, David. Thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you on the good old proverbial flip side. Flip side.